Roberts is basing his work on this book by uh, Graham uh, Goldsworthy, and this is this. If you're going to buy one book, this is the book that I would uh, recommend. Again, I don't necessarily agree with everything uh, in terms of how Goldsworthy puts it all together, but this is a terrific uh, sort of section by section summary of the storyline of Scripture. And for those who are a little bit more academically minded, this book by T. Desmond Alexander, From Eden to the New Jerusalem, looks at the different themes of temple and dwelling place and sacrifice and offspring and ties all of these uh, together. This is the thinnest book of the lot, but it's, it's the most difficult and challenging in terms of uh, reading content. So those are some uh, suggestions for, uh, for you. Today we're jumping into uh, the book of Acts and, and uh, the letters. And before I do that, let me just open us in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord. We come to you asking for your Spirit to help us, to open our eyes, to understand your Word, to see it, Lord, the way that the apostles intended for us to read it, the way that the Spirit who inspired the apostles to write these words, Lord, that we would be able to comprehend what your Word says and the difference that it makes in our lives. Lord, I pray that as we would come to understand your story, that you would would draw us, Lord, away from trying to write our own story and do things our own way, but draw us into your family, into your story, into your presence, where we would worship you and adore you. So God, we pray that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, There was a number of changes in the sporting world in light of COVID-19, and uh, this was no different for professional soccer uh, in Europe. Now, some Scottish soccer fans were in for a bit of a surprise last October. They weren't allowed to support their team uh, in person. They weren't allowed to come to the stadium, to the pitch, to watch uh, their favorite team. This one particular team, Inverness Caledonian Thistle Football Club, uh, decided they're going to start televising their games. They're going to stream them over uh, the internet. And uh, they thought they would, since they're going to, since they're investing in technology, they're going to go all the way. They're going to get cameras, but they're not going to hire camera operators. They're going to use artificial intelligence to, to move the camera, to change the shot, to follow the game. Now, so what they did is they held a soccer ball in front of the camera and the artificial intelligence, the computer inside the camera was supposed to recognize the ball. And they thought, well, wherever the ball goes, the camera will zero in on the ball because if you follow the ball in a soccer game, you follow the action. Well, as the fans tuned in to watch, they were terribly disappointed because as the game started, right from the very beginning, the camera immediately focused in on the sideline. And then it would reorient every once in a while and zero in on the ball. And then it would go right back to this one specific spot on the sideline. And the fans realized that it was actually zeroing in on a particular person. It was zeroing in on one of the referees, one of the line judges on the side. You know, those guys with the, with the flags who determine if something's offside or if it's gone inbounds or out of bounds. And this is the line judge... And (laughs) you see, only someone with a haircut like mine can really talk about this sort of thing. You see, the the so-called artificial intelligence, and I use the word intelligence lightly, confused the referee's head 
for the soccer ball, you know, follow the big white thing on the field. And so they, the art of the, <laughs> I just love it. You see, we miss the point when we focus on the wrong thing. If you want to enjoy a soccer match, you don't pay attention to the line judge. You follow the ball. And loved ones, when we read scripture, we need to make sure that our focus is in the right place. You see, Jesus Christ is the focus of Scripture. He is the point of the Bible. And we've been trying to understand that all throughout the Old Testament. We've been showing how all of it points to Jesus. And then we got into the Gospels last week where Jesus arrives. He's born. He's teaching. He's performing miracles. He's crucified. He's risen. But then he ascends into heaven. And our danger now is to, is to take the focus off of Jesus and start thinking about, oh, how do I read the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians or the book of Acts and apply it to my life? No, the point still is to have us focus on Jesus. The main focus of the Bible and our lives must be Jesus Christ. The main focus of the Bible and the main focus of our lives must be Jesus Christ. Now, you said, you're probably thinking, why are we starting in Luke 24 if if we're looking at the book of Acts and uh, the letters uh, in the New Testament today, why are we starting there? Well, the Gospel of Luke actually comes to us in two parts. Part one is called the Gospel of Luke, and part two is called the book of Acts. Both were written by Luke. Now, the reason why we have John in between is because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. They tell a, a synopsis, and they all synergize with one another. They all fit together, so that's why they're lumped together. John is kind of out on its own. The, the way John writes is so different and so unique, they put that at the end. But Luke was meant to go right from part one into part two in the Acts of the Apostles. So let's look at Luke 24, verse 40. This is the resurrected Jesus. The temple had been torn down, but now it's rebuilt. The offspring had been cut off, but now he is the firstborn from the dead. The lamb has been slain, but now he is standing like the lion of Judah. So Jesus has appeared to his disciples. He chased them down the road to Emmaus. He's, he, he appeared to them in a locked room and he shows them, he teaches them in Luke 24 verse 44. He said, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. See what Jesus is saying there? He's telling us where our focus needs to be. That Moses, the, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, has content about Jesus. That's what we've been looking at in the storyline of Scripture. The prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, these all point to Jesus. Even the Psalms point to Jesus. Look at verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus is saying, here's the plan. It's going to start in Jerusalem, but my name is going to be proclaimed. The disciples are like, this sounds amazing. And then Jesus says in verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. You're going to be the ones who are going to give the testimony. You are the witnesses of these things. 
And he says, and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He says, I'm sending you the promise of my father. Well, what is the promise? Well, let's turn to the book of Acts. So if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1, remember, think about Acts as really being part 2 of the gospel of Luke. Acts chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the first book, that's Luke, the book of Luke, in the first book, O Theophilus, that's who the book was written for, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, what is assumed in that statement? If Luke is about what Jesus began to do, then what is Acts about? Acts is about what Jesus continued to do. Just because Jesus is no longer physically present in the story doesn't mean that he's no longer the focus, doesn't mean that he's no longer the primary character. You see, Jesus began to do work in the book of Luke, and now he is going to continue that work by what he said in Luke 24 was the promise of the Father. Well, what is the promise? Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Holy Spirit is the promise of the Father. The Holy Spirit that's promised in, in the book of Ezekiel, and the book of Jeremiah, and the book of Joel, so many places that, that, that God was going to give people a new heart and transform them from the inside out. So the Holy Spirit is what is going to give them power. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Same as Luke 24. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. This statement here gives the geographical outline of the book of Acts. The book of Acts starts in Jerusalem and then they venture out a little bit further out into Judea. Picture like a city and a province. Then they go into really enemy territory filled with Gentiles, Samaria, and then into Antioch and beyond to the ends of the earth. That's how the book of Acts flows together. That's the geographical flow. That's Jesus' intention. So Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come. And the Spirit arrives, the fulfillment of the promise comes in Acts chapter 2. He has given this mission to his disciples. He's, he said, Jerusalem, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth, you've got to make the gospel known in all of these places. And it's the Spirit that's going to empower them to be able to do this. So if you're taking notes today, jot this down. The Holy Spirit empowers us to fulfill the mission of Christ. So the Holy Spirit comes but the, the Holy Spirit didn't come to attract attention to himself. The Holy Spirit didn't come just to make us feel better. The Holy Spirit came so that we would accomplish the mission that Christ gave to us. Christ is the focus. Acts 2, verses 1 to 6, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. This is the, this is the disciples. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house and it, where, where they were sitting and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. How? Verse 5, now... Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven. 
And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Do you see what's, do you see what's happening here? This is like a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Remember the Tower of Babel? These people, they had one language and they were going to build this city and build this tower up to heaven and God came and confused their languages so that they could no longer cooperate in this way and make life about them without making it about God. But here now the Spirit has come and we see a reversal of the Tower of Babel. We also see a fulfillment of the promise made to, made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God said, in your offspring, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Every family on earth will be blessed. And here we have people who are in the city of Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of, past, of Pentecost. And they're from every nation under heaven. And they are hearing the praise of God coming in their own language. So the people try to figure out what's going on. Peter is the one to step up. Again, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. That makes all of the difference. Peter, the one who was afraid of a servant girl at the gate uh, when Jesus was on trial. Peter, who denied Jesus three times, even called a curse upon himself rather than be identified with Jesus Christ, now stands up in front of this massive crowd and proclaims the gospel. People thought that, that the Disciples must be drunk. That must be, that must be what's going on. Look at Acts 2 verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and then he quotes Joel chapter 2. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is the promise, the promise of the coming of the spirit. And what does the spirit do? As Peter is filled with the spirit, as all of this attention is drawn, then Peter starts talking about Jesus Look at verse 22 of Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, the Spirit has come and where does the attention go? Not on the different languages, not on the tongues of fire, not on the sound of the rushing wind, not on what all of the focus is on Jesus Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, where did Peter get that idea? Did Peter think that it, this was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God when he, was, when he was denying Jesus three times? No, he didn't think it was the plan of God, but now Jesus has been risen from the dead. Now Jesus has opened to him the scriptures, what was revealed in the prophets and in Moses and in the Psalms. Speaking of the Psalms, look at what David says next. Look down at verse 25. For David says concerning him, talking about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand. I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." So, this is the first, the first day of church ever. This is the first Christian sermon ever preached. It's a topical sermon. So, 
Peter begins with Joel chapter 2 to explain the coming of the Holy Spirit, and now he's using Psalm 16, a psalm of David. Now, when people are hearing this, they're immediately rejecting, saying, that psalm is not about Jesus, that psalm is about David. It was David who was spared from the grave. There were so many times where David was close to death, fighting Goliath, running from Saul, all of these different times where David had a brush with death, but he was, he was one foot from the grave, but God rescued him. But look at what, look at what Peter says in verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. Remember, Peter is paying attention to the storyline of scripture, that's 2 Samuel 7, the promise that a descendant of David would sit on his throne forever. Verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, which means the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So it is true, David did have a number of brushes with death. He did have a number of close calls, but those were all stamps on the paper. But Jesus is the ultimate stamp that is behind it all. And Jesus didn't just have a brush with death. Crucifixion is not like a close call. He was, he was fully died. He, he was rescued from the grave, rescued from Hades after he was put in the grave for three days, and God raised him from the dead. This is typology. This is what we talked about last week as we were going through the Gospels. Remember, Jesus had opened the eyes of the disciples to be able to understand the Scripture. He said in Luke 24, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So Peter filled with the Spirit, is now empowered to fulfill his mission. The mission was to be a witness of the resurrection. And so Peter takes out his Old Testament, he stands up in front of this crowd, and he is empowered to fulfill his mission. And loved ones, this is what the Holy Spirit has come to do, to help us put the focus on Jesus. If you're here today and you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, that means that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And since you are filled with the Holy Spirit, that means that you already have inside of you the boldness and the courage to be able to bear witness about who Jesus Christ is. You might think, well, that's that's for some people. You know, there's some people who they they go to farmer's markets and they walk up to people on the street. They're always sharing their faith online. That's just for like the certain hardcore, they're sort of like the Marines of the Christians. I'm just more like general infantry, you know, and or maybe a civilian. I don't really know. No, all of us who have the Spirit have the Spirit for a purpose. The Spirit came so that we would fulfill Christ's mission so that we would be able to give testimony to who Jesus is and what he came to do. So we have this evangelism course, which really is is just a way to how to let out of you what is already inside of you. The courage, the boldness to be able to speak about Jesus and to bear witness about him. And this is what the book of Acts is all about. It is about the fulfillment of the mission. And it began in Jerusalem. But remember, Jesus said he's got to get into Samaria. 
and it's got to get to the ends of the earth. But as the book of Acts kind of unfolds, we see the church in Jerusalem, they're meeting together, they're breaking bread, they're having fellowship, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, but things start to get a little bit too comfortable. And then we even come to Acts chapter 6, and now they're kind of disagreeing and judging one one another, they're taking offense at one another about one, one language group versus another language group. And, and the church starts to get focused too inward. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, allows persecution to come into the church. And Stephen, the first one, he, he wasn't called upon to be a Bible teacher. He was just called upon to serve tables so that people would get along better. But then Stephen gives this incredible speech in Acts chapter 7 that takes you cover to cover the storyline of Scripture. And then Stephen is martyred, the first person to lay down their life for their faith in Jesus Christ. But the persecution keeps coming. And it's no longer safe for all of the Christians to stay in Jerusalem. And so they start to spread out. And guess where some of them go? In Acts chapter 8. Look at Acts chapter 8 verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Peter went down to the city of Samaria. There you go. There's the next thing on the list that where Jesus said we got to go. Jerusalem, check. Okay, we got 3,000 people on the first day. Jerusalem's taken care of. Now God allows some persecution to come. Now we're headed into Samaria. Then we come to Acts chapter 9, and this is a surprise. Here's a plot twist. The very one who's at the tip of the spear in bringing the persecution, Saul of Tarsus, gets saved. And he is going to be used by God to push things beyond just the city of, just beyond the region of Samaria, but to the very ends of the earth. Then we come to Acts chapter 10. Find Acts 10 verse 44. Let me bring you up to speed what has happened up until that point. Peter has this vision where he's supposed to go and and meet with this Gentile, this non-Jewish guy who's in the military named Cornelius. Cornelius also has a vision that he's supposed to go and invite Peter to come to his house. Peter had never darkened the door of a non-Jewish home in his life. You got to think about the, the, the cultural uh, barriers that, that Peter overcame to even go and visit Cornelius. And he shares, he shares his faith. Peter has the power, he has the courage because he has the spirit. He's doing something he never thought he would do all of his life. He's sitting down in a non Jewish home and he's explaining to them the gospel. And then in Acts 2, verse 44, it says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, the Jewish believers who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Jerusalem, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit is for everyone because Jesus came for everyone. And our mission is to spread the gospel to every corner of the earth so that everyone would know. Because one day people from every tribe and tongue and nation will gather together before the throne and say, worthy is the Lamb. And then the book of Acts takes a shift. The book of Acts moves from a focus really on Peter. Peter is at the center of it in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 4, in Acts chapter 10. He's at the center. Now it shifts to Saul of Tarsus, this guy who was once persecuting followers of Jesus, is now proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. And so Paul now, he's involved in this multicultural church in Syria, in a place called Antioch, 
And in, in Acts chapter 13, it says that the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I, that I have called them to. So in Acts chapter 13, this church becomes the first church planting church, becomes the first missionary sending church. And Paul goes out on his first missionary journey. Let me show you this geographically. So down here on the bottom right, way down in the bottom corner, that's the Holy Land. That's the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Antioch is way north of there, up in Syria. And Paul left Antioch and went to a province. He went to Cyprus. That's the island just west of Antioch. And then he he sailed into a region called Galatia. He visited a number of cities called Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. He shared the gospel with them, and the response was amazing. These people all come to faith in Jesus. And so Paul then returns home and acts home to Antioch in Acts chapter 14 and 15. Now look with me at Acts chapter 15. Acts 15 says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Verse 2, And Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, if we're going to be faithful in fulfilling the mission by the power of the Spirit, the mission that Christ has given us, there's really two things that have to happen. We have to proclaim the gospel, but we also have to protect the gospel. Acts chapter 15 is, is the first time where we see false teaching, where we see someone coming along, a Jewish Christian telling all the non-Jewish Christians that if you want to become Christian, you got to become Jewish. Someone from one nation telling the people from all of the nations that, no, 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 in order to become a Christian, you have to join our nation first, and then you can become a Christian. And Acts chapter 15 is a major turning point. Because what, the, what is being said here, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is, this is salvation by works. This is unless you follow these rules, you cannot get into heaven. This is climbing up towards God rather than the truth that Jesus came down to us. This is a major, major turning point in the story. And so we see here the Paul and Barnabas go down to Jerusalem. They meet with the disciples. Peter's there. Look at verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about the Cornelius story. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And made, he made, notice this, no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by, not circumcision, not obedience to the law of Moses, cleansed their hearts by faith. Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. 
It's about faith. It's about grace. It's about not just proclaiming the gospel, but protecting the gospel that is being proclaimed. Not allowing works, righteousness, or legalism to enter into the church. And really what is happening here is the apostles here are saying once and for all is that Gentiles are a part of the family. Non-Jewish Christians are a part of the church. And this becomes a major focus, a major emphasis in the rest of the New Testament. The unity between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians. So this leads us to the second thing that the Holy Spirit has come to do. The Holy Spirit unites us as the body of Christ. Jewish Christians, non-Jewish Christians are united as the body of Christ. Now, let me show you this on a little bit of a timeline. So um, let's bring that up on the screen. So the Holy Spirit unites us as, as the body of Christ. Now, the first mission trip is Acts 13 and 14. He went to Cyprus and Galatia. Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. That's where they just nailed down. Non-Jewish Christians are welcome. You don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. We're not about legalism. We're about grace. We're about faith. It was during that time that Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. The letter to the Galatians. Keep your finger in the book of Acts. Turn with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16. Galatians 2 verse 16. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul is recounting a conversation he had with Peter in Antioch about legalism, about, the, about whether or not you need to be Jewish in order to be saved. In Acts 2 verse 16, he says, yet we know that a person is not justified, is not made righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. So here's, Paul, here's the first letter Paul ever wrote. And he's hammering out this truth. We are saved by faith. Look down at chapter 3, verse 7. He wants, to, he wants to be clear that we're all part of the body. We're all part of the family. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith... Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. He's going back to the promise of Abraham. He's skipping over Moses and the law. And he's going way back to the promise about the offspring of Abraham. In you shall all the nations be blessed. Paul says that Genesis 12, in you all the nations shall be blessed, was like preaching the good news, the gospel, before Christ came. Then look at Galatians chapter 4 verse 6 talking to non-Jewish Christians. He's telling them that they're adopted into the family of God. They're not outsiders. They're welcome. They're part of the body. They're part of the family. They're part of the church. Galatians 4 verse 6, he says, because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So the Spirit unites us to the Father, and because of that, because we cry, Abba, Father, we also cry, Brother, Sister, we belong to one another. This is what the Spirit does. It empowers us to fulfill the mission of Christ, and it unites us into the body of Christ. Go back with me to the book of Acts and find Acts chapter 15, verse 36. 
Acts chapter 15, verse 36, and we see how this idea of unity becomes a major burden for the Apostle Paul. Here's why. Acts 15, verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Paul wants to go back and visit the churches that they've planted. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. Paul here is is having a, a, a sharp disagreement with his ministry partner, Barnabas. We can see why Paul, from this point on, from after Galatians, we see this huge emphasis on unity within the church. So let's, let's look at those maps again. The, 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 the first uh, uh, church plant was in Galatia. Paul goes back there. He recruits Timothy as his new uh, ministry partner there. And then on the second journey, we see him spread into some other places. Let's look at the next map on the screen. He goes to uh, Ephesus. He goes to Macedonia, where Philippi and Thessalonica are. He visits uh, Achaia, where, where there's Athens and Corinth. Now, all of these names should sound familiar. This is all in the book of Acts. Ephesians, Ephesus, Philippians, Philippi, Thessalonica, Thessalonians, Corinth, Corinthians. Paul visited all of these places. And so when you read the book of Corinthians, you can actually have the book of Acts open in your Bible and it will help things make a lot more sense. Paul goes on another journey, a third journey to visit all of these places again. Turn with me to Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Acts 18, verse 24. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. So he was a really great speaker. He knew the Bible. Now Prisca and Aquila had to sort of take him aside to teach him some things. But look at chapter 19, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the... the, the inland, Paul had already been to uh, Corinth, but now Apollos is there. And remember, the Spirit is supposed to unite the body of Christ. So turn with me now, keep your hands in the book of Acts, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Apollos went to Corinth after Paul planted the church in Corinth. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Now, who should they be following? They should be following Jesus. But Paul planted the church, tried to get the focus on Jesus. Apollos went there. I'm sure Apollos' heart was to get the focus on Jesus. But the focus became about Paul. It became about Apollos. And there were divisions among them. Look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, Paul came first, Apollos came second, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. Verse 16, when he's talking about the church falling apart and being divided, he says in chapter 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit dwells in you? We're supposed to be united. We're supposed to be the temple. 
But Paul sees how, he lived it out with Barnabas. He's seeing it happen in Corinth. He knows how fragile unity is and he knows the only hope is the Spirit because the Spirit puts the attention on Jesus and Jesus is the focus of the Bible and ought to be the focus of our lives. And so that's why we see Paul later in 1 Corinthians 12, we won't turn there, but the whole body metaphor, there's one body, there's one spirit. We see this picked up in other books. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. Can we get Ephesians 2, 22? Sorry, I'm jumping ahead a little bit for the sake of time. Ephesians 2, 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Again, this temple imagery. Remember, all about the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. But then Jesus shows up, John 1, he dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. He said in John 3, tear down this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. Jesus is the new temple, but now we, as our focus is on Jesus, we are being built together. We live out the identity of a temple as well. Philippians chapter 2, oh sorry, it's still in Ephesians, Ephesians 4, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. The Spirit unites us as the body of Christ. And so we, we have here this idea that the Spirit has been sent to empower us to fulfill the mission of Christ, but also to unite us as the body of Christ. This is what the Spirit does. This is why the Spirit gives us spiritual gifts for the common good to build up the body of Christ. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ here today, that means you're filled with the Spirit. We already talked about that there's implications for you in terms of mission and sharing your faith, but it also means, it also means that because you're filled with the Spirit, that you must be united to the body. No spirit-led Christian ever walks out of church. No spirit-led Christian ever sows seeds of division. The spirit will never lead you away from God's people. The spirit will always lead you closer to Jesus. And as you're getting closer to Jesus, and as the spirit leads other people closer to Jesus, you will all get closer to one another, like spokes on a wheel, like branches on a tree, and Jesus is the trunk. We will be led by the Spirit towards unity. And let's look at Ephesians 4 back on the screen one more time. Eager to maintain. Maintain the unity. We don't create unity. We don't do things to help the church bond or to unite. No, the church is already united. Our job is not the creation of unity, but the maintenance of unity. In the same way, you already have the boldness you need to share your faith because the Spirit is already in you. You also, we already have, we already are united in Christ by the Spirit. We, it's just our job to maintain it and to be eager to do it. And then lastly, the Holy Spirit conforms us into the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit conforms us into the image of Christ. You go back, I won't make you turn there, but let me just tell you how the book of Acts ends. Paul goes on these three missionary journeys and then he gets arrested in Jerusalem. And then he, sh- he, he goes on trial three different times and he shares his testimony each time. Then he gets on a boat, he's on a, 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 an inmate transfer. He goes all the way to, uh, to Rome where he's going to testify before Caesar. And it's, it's there where, where uh, Paul does uh, some more Uh, some more uh, writing where he is uh, helping Christians understand what the Christian life is all about. 
And Paul, together with all of the other New Testament authors, uses a number of different Old Testament analogies and and typologies in order to figure out how to live the Christian life. Let me show you what I mean. We've got stuff like new creation in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We've got the contrast between Adam, the man of dust, and Jesus, the man of heaven. We've got the flood in 1 Peter 3. We already talked about Abraham. We've got the exodus and how Baptism is like going through the Red Sea. Right now we're wandering through the wilderness of this life, but waiting on the the coming to the promised land, which is heaven. We've got the danger of idolatry. We've got the temple, living sacrifices in Romans 12, being poured out in Philippians 2. Oh my goodness, the whole book of Hebrews. Um, would be a whole series on the storyline of Scripture and how it all fits together. And then this concept of exile. You see, the Holy Spirit helps us understand all of these things so that we can be conformed into the image of Christ. I want to ask you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul here is, is talking to the, uh, church, the church in Corinth. He's, he's already talked to them in the first letter about the importance of unity. Now in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about the, the idea of weakness. He's talking to them about the idea of, of growing in maturity. And he's zeroing in on this theme of a veil. Remember the tabernacle? There were all these veils, like the rooms were divided by these curtains. And then when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments, his face was shining and he put a veil over his face. So Paul is thinking about this theme of veil. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, And we, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we, our faces are Unveiled. Remember, when, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil, the curtain in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. We have access to God through Jesus Christ. So we have unveiled faces. We are looking at the glory of the Lord. And we are being transformed into the same image. We are becoming more like what we're seeing. So as we see Jesus, we become more like Jesus. And who is the one that helps us see Jesus? Keep, keep reading in verse 18. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what the Spirit does for us is the Spirit helps us to see Jesus. And as we see Jesus, we become more like Jesus. Notice that it comes from one degree of glory from another. You see, we want at least like 45 degrees at a time. Like that's what we would like. But the Spirit works slowly, one degree at a time, reorienting our lives to become more like Jesus Christ. So one thing that the Spirit does is the Spirit helps us to see Jesus so that we become more like Him. That's sort of the positive work of the Spirit. But the negative work of the Spirit is that as we see Jesus, we also put sin to death. We also put sin to death. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 on the screen. 1 Peter 2, 11 on the screen. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your 
soul. We have these passions inside of us. And Romans chapter 8 says that, that if we live by the Spirit, we will put to death those passions in our life. And God has given us the Spirit to empower us for mission. He's given us the Spirit to unite us to the body. And He's given us the Spirit to conform us into the image of His Son so that we can see Jesus and so that we can slay sin, put it to death in our lives. And at the very end of one of Paul's greatest letters, Romans 16. You might be tired of turning places. I'll just read it to you if you want. But Romans 16 verse 20 says something that's absolutely incredible. I think it was J.C. Ryle that said um, that a Christian is known by their inner peace and their inner warfare. That there is a sense of peace with God, an unveiled face. We are seeing God and the Spirit is helping us to see Jesus clearly. There's an inner peace, but there's also an inner warfare. We are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Look at how these themes all come together in Romans 16, verse 20. It says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. And then it says, under your feet. Under your feet. You see, loved ones, this is absolutely remarkable. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who died for us, and we too can offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, Romans 12. Jesus is the true temple that was rebuilt in three days, and we're the temple of the Holy Spirit that's being built together. Jesus is the true offspring, the promised one from Genesis 3.15, who will crush the head of the serpent, and we're the offspring of, of Abraham. We're sons, and we're brought into the family of God, and we too, just like Jesus, will crush the head of the serpent ultimately, and that's next week in the book of Revelation. But we, we in our own lives, and our own experience, crush the head of the serpent. Glory to God. That this beautiful story, and not only that God has done this incredible thing, but that he would choose to include us in our daily struggle to try to see Jesus and to try to fight sin. The Spirit is there to help us, and by the power of the Spirit, we too, as offspring of the snake crusher, are crushing the serpent's head for God's glory. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we look to you, we worship you, we come to you in the name of Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who is the temple that was rebuilt, who is the offspring that is the firstborn of the dead, the snake crusher. Lord, we thank you that you have sent us your spirit. We pray that we would live and keep in step with the spirit, that we would bear the fruit of the spirit in our lives, being transformed into your image for your glory. Lord, we love you and thank you. We pray that you would be with us as we continue to worship now and continue to live lives of worship for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.